Good evening. My name is Gillian McIntyre, and I coordinate the adult programs here at the AGO. And it's a great delight this evening to welcome our first event of the season, to welcome Mark Hayworth Booth to Toronto. So. Having said it was a first event of the season, I'd like to apologize for those of you who were trying to buy tickets. The system was saying it was sold out. I didn't think it was. So we did the best we could, and I really apologize for the inconvenience, and we'll sort it out. There's always, you know, the first time, new staff, etc., etc. So uh, before I give the introduction for Mark, I'd like to thank some people for making this event this evening possible, because... We, we do a lot of partnerships here, and this is a very delightful one. So I'd like to thank Marta Braun and Elspeth Brown for arranging to bring Mark Hayworth Booth here to Toronto in partnership with the Toronto Photography Cere um, Seminar and Ryerson University. So, Mark Hayworth Booth served as a curator of the Victoria and Albert Museum from 1970 to 2004 and helped to build up its great collection of photography, he is now a visiting professor of photography at the University of Arts, the Arts London. Mark is an honorary research fellow at the Victoria and Albert Museum and a senior fellow of the Royal College of Art. He's curated many exhibitions, the most recent being The Art of Lee Miller. The exhibition toured to Philadelphia, San Francisco and Paris and received over half a million visitors. Mark acted as a consultant on the BBC's well-received television series, The Genius of Photography, airing in the autumn of 2007. He is now preparing with Jeux de Pomme Paris and the National Portrait Gallery in London, a centenary retrospective of the pioneering photographer Camille Sylvie, to be shown in Paris and London in 2010. Mark researched the Sylvie exhibition catalogue at the Paul J. Getty Museum as a guest scholar from April to June in 2008. Apart from the Sylvie retrospective, Mark is an editor of the Exposures series of books on photography, published by Reaction Books. In addition, Mark travelled to Egypt in January 2009 with Anthony and Joshua Penrose to study the work of Lee Miller there in the years 1934 to 39. An exhibition on Lee Miller in Egypt is being prepared by the Lee Miller Archives. would probably go very well with our Tut exhibition, actually. <laughs> Now, because I am from London and I'm interested in some of the other things Mark does, I'm going to tell you about them. Mark supports Airplot, activist opposition to Heathrow Airport expansion, <laughs> Amnesty International, Chelsea Football Club, Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace, the London Cycling Campaign, the National Blood Service, the Poetry Society, and he writes wonderful poems. There's one of them on his website. The Soil Association, which I haven't heard of, you might tell us about that later. The Victoria and Albert Museum and the Wandsworth Society. So now you know a little bit more about this man. Mark Hayworth Booth. Thank you very much. I don't think I've ever had a nicer introduction. Um, and it's great to be here. It's, it's, um, it's wonderful and daunting to see so many of my distinguished friends and colleagues here. So be gentle with me, please, during the question and answer we'll have at the end. This is a large subject, and I know everyone has a, has a stake in it, and I hope we can um, get some clarification during the evening. Um, I just want to say that the 
there is a, a, a little-known but much-feared organization called EDUCT, which is the Edinburgh University Alumni Club of Toronto. And my brother-in-law, Simon, has galvanized this shadowy group and brought them together here tonight. And uh, it's very nice to see them here. Um, I, this is my first trip to Toronto, and I've, I've only know it really through... Um, well, through these great museums you have. I always thought that R.B. Kitai, the painter, said the right thing when he said museums are beacons, and this is one of the brightest of all the beacons, I think. Um, I know Toronto only otherwise from the Michael Ondaatje novel um, in The Skin of a Lion, and at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning I was taken out by Anne Kerr to the Palace of Purification. I saw it in that wonderful light, and I've seen the viaduct, and among other homages, I was, able, I, I was taken to see um, Marshall McLuhan's house in Witchwood Park. More of him in a minute. Um, and I spent some wonderful hours talking to Edward Bertinsky and Jeffrey James in the last couple of days, so I've had the most wonderfully intense and interesting trip. Um... When I was walking around the art gallery here yesterday, I had many great moments of um, sheer pleasure and, and discovery, but one of the most touching for me was to walk into the Henry Moore Gallery, and it wasn't just because he was a great British sculptor, but he was actually one of the first artists I ever had any dealings with, and it was when I was at Cambridge University, it was in the summer, I think, of or the spring of 1966. And we asked Henry Moore if he would um, lend our college one of his sculptures. And I was, I was thrilled to find that the, the, the cast for that particular sculpture is up in the gallery here. So it was, it was a good moment to remember that encounter. And Henry brought over this sculpture from his studio in Much Haddam to Clare College, Cambridge, with his usual mover, whose name was Finbow, wonderfully Tolkienian name, I thought. And the local reporter came from the Cambridge News, and he said, what do you think of the pigeons, Mr. Moore? And Henry said, I don't mind the pigeons at all. So, you know, there was a great story for the Cambridge Evening News. And then, then the reporter said... Uh, and what is the name of the piece, Mr. Moore? And Henry was dumbfounded, and I stepped forward proudly, incandescent with excitement, because I knew the name. And like the school swat, I said, upright motif number eight. <laughs> I was thrilled to death. <laughs> anyway, so that's up in the gallery, alongside the most famous of that series, the Glenkiln Cross upright motif number one, which I went to see with the Edinburgh University Fine Arts Society in the summer of 1969. Anyway, so you can see from all this um, retrospectiveness that I've just uttered that what I'm going to talk about tonight is, is a changing perspective on photography over quite a few years, and I hope you will forgive a somewhat retrospective um, Bear to what I say, but it's, it's, I've been reflecting on the way things have changed since I got involved in the medium. 
And I want to start with uh, Geoffrey Best, who was a wonderful professor at Edinburgh University, whose inaugural lecture I heard in 1969, and it made a great impression on me. Geoffrey looked nothing like this photograph of him. He was um, big-boned, ruddy-faced, fair-haired, and impressive. He wasn't this wispy character we see here. So I think dealing with photography and truth from the outset, we have to admit that um, photographs of ourselves are always well-meaning failures. And his remarks were highly memorable, and I, I, I want to share with you the ones that, I, that stuck with me most. He said this, a historian is a citizen too, and he said, history is in part a court of posthumous justice, justice to fellow humans who have worked, aspired, suffered, and been made to suffer, who have made sacrifices and been made sacrifices of in the historic evolution of our kind. This is, in effect, an extension backward of the principle of present justice. The Michael Ondaatje novel seems to me also a kind of justice to the immigrants who built the great monuments of this city. So that was my one of the things that I've always carried with me. But this is something else I've carried with me. This is, these are the first photographs I saw that impinged on, on me as things that were both about the world and about photography. It's, of course, Donald McCullin, um, a photojournalist for the Sunday Times in its great days, in the late 60s and early 70s. This is from 1968, his story on Hue. And... He became a hero because of being embedded with a, um, with a group of U.S. Marines in Hue, the old university city which was under attack by the Viet Cong. This is how I got to know him first, through photographs like this and images like this. And the veracity of his images was vouched for by the fact that he was so close to this grenade-throwing uh, Marine, his, my javelin thrower, he called him. And he showed us a variety of pictures in these long spreads, now impossible in photojournalism and magazines, lulls in the fighting, um, people being dragged to safety, um, looking like Robert Redford in his early days in this case, and in this case, Henry Fonda, or someone who looks like him, looking on as a colleague is, is, treat, is, is treated for a grave wound, um, color pictures of... a. Uh, a Viet Cong suspect being readied for interrogation, civilians who had been hiding in foxholes in Hue, which were then blasted with grenades, emerging into the light to be, to be treated and photographed by McCullen, uh, a famous picture of a Viet Cong with his personal effects strewn around him, and his testimony. And one of the most... Um, colourful things he said was that I was a product of Hitler. I was born in the 30s and bombed in the 40s. Then the Hollywood people moved in and started showing me pictures of violence. And it, it was... I'd, I'm sure I didn't notice this particularly consciously at the time, but there's something strange going on between gritty photographs of, in black and white and colour images of television sets and references to Hollywood film as a way of, of um, shaping the way an artist would see reality. And, of course, in those days, the person who theorized all this was Marshall McLuhan, and he was extremely current 
in those days in a way that is impossible for most people to understand today because his, 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 he's been erased, really, from the map of discussion as far, as far as the things I read go, which seems to me quite extraordinary. I got to know his work really through a book by one of his colleagues, Edward Carpenter, whose work I'm sure you know, who worked with him here in Toronto. And it was a book I picked up in 1970 or 73 in the States by Carpenter called They Became What They Beheld, which introduced me to McLuhan's thinking. And I was arrested by the fact that he saw a new medium, like television, having an effect on its predecessor. So um, the, uh, in the way that film would change theatre, uh, television would change the illustrated press. And the 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 theory was that the dominant medium carries the cliches of mass society and the superannuated or overtaken medium is free to become an art medium and to address, to question society's values. And this seems to me is exactly what happened. Um, in the Viennese case, it was a museum that had collected photographs since 1852, but had had a a long lapse at the end of the 19th century. It then collected historical photographs in the 1930s when photography came, became 100 years old. But it started collecting contemporary photographs again in 1964. And this is exactly the moment when most households in Britain had televisions. So for me, McLuhan's theory has always worked. And, and I had to find a way when I was thinking about early phot photography in the early 70s when I began to be interested I wondered why, how could it be that a medium that was worthless one minute was priceless the next? By minute, I mean a generation, 25 years. Say from 1965 to 1990, this happened. And it's McLuhan who is the only theorist I've read who has any worthwhile ideas about this. So he was the sort of person you wanted to read when you were looking at Sharp Suits, this is all part of the same magazine as the McCullen coverage of the war, Sharp Suits and Sharp Advertisements for Fighting in Tanks, side by side with the reportage from Vietnam. And as I got to know McCullen's work better, I began to experience a series of humiliations which I'd like to share with you this evening, because you may have several similar moments of discovery and humiliation yourselves. First of all, I discovered, because Don was candid about it, that this photograph was a real Viet Cong, and the effects were real, but the way they were spread out around him was organized by Don, because he wanted a memorable photograph. So already there's a kind of cocktail of, of truth and falsehood in this picture. On the right is a picture that was not used in that reportage in the magazine in 1968, I think because it was too truthful. This is a, the famous photograph of the shell-shocked marine. It was not shown until much later because perhaps it was too prescient of the end game in Vietnam or because McCullen had respect for this man's feelings. How could he show a picture like this? of a, a man suffering psychological trauma. Could he do that while showing a, de a dead Viet Cong? Possibly. Anyway, that's a, a subject I want to 
to explore to some extent. I don't know the answer. I could perhaps ask him someday. Now, I belong to another mafia, which is the Cambridge Mafia, and I was taught by F.R. Leavis, the firebrand literary critic, who was exceptional because he did two things that aren't generally found together. He did extraordinarily accurate, close readings of classic literary text, but he was also interested in mass communications, on which he wrote a book, Mass Communications and Minority Culture. And he taught Marshall McLuhan in the 1930s and he taught me in the 1960s. And what I, when I entered photography, I thought maybe what I could do is to bring some of that close reading stuff from the Cambridge Literary School into photography and look as closely as I could at photographic images because I knew nothing about them technically. I've learned something from talking to a lot of very tolerant photographers since. But that's what I hoped I might be able to do. This is the, from the first show I ever saw in an art gallery, Bill Brandt's show at the Hayward Gallery London in 1970, curated brilliantly by John Sharkovsky and shown at the Museum of Modern Art in New York the previous year. And I've noticed that people are always fascinated by the photographs that took place when their parents were young. And I was astounded when I had young assistants who were born in 1970 that they found the 60s interesting. Um, and I found the 30s interesting, of course. And I loved being able to see these pictures that seemed an indictment of the whole service um, and deferential era of Edwardian Britain that had survived right up to the Second World War and was then swept away afterwards. And Bill skewered this, this brilliantly, I thought. It was only later that I discovered that this was, took place in the house of one of his banker uncles. And... I think we assume that a photographer is an outsider, a stranger, a witness, an impartial person. But, of course, it can't work like that. You have to have access. And I, of course, was thrilled by pictures like this by Bill in the same show, Thames Fog, 1936. And I was lucky enough to get to know him in the 70s um, and worked with him closely. And I was astounded and appalled to find that this picture started life as this picture, and I was shocked to find that it was a double fake because the girl is clearly montaged onto the fog. It would be impossible to get that sharpness on the girl in those conditions. Completely impossible. So this is how Bill's picture that I saw started life in his book, The English at Home, 1936. And it changed for good reason because he was a frequent contributor to Lilliput magazine in the late 30s, who asked him to do this, these, the central pictures here. Um, on the left here is a Gustave Doré wood engraving from his book on London in 1872, and the magazine asked Bill to, to update it, as he did here. So naturally, he had to have a moon, and that was not a problem for him. And he had to sh switch the picture, flip it back, because he wanted it to fly into the other picture, because he was very keen on page architecture. So I began to have a few suspicions about photography and truth at this point. <laughs> and on my first trips, I mentioned I came to um, the United States in 1970 and 73, and I contracted a great passion for the American landscape tradition, Edward Weston and 
Ansel Adams, and I was particularly impressed by the fact that Ansel Adams invented the zone system, which allowed him and other photographers using the system to pre-visualize their prints so that at the moment of exposure, they would work out all the correlations of exposure and development and visualize the pre-visualize the final print. So, of course, I, I fell in love with his masterpiece, his most famous picture, Moonrise Hernandez, 1941, and bought it for the museum, showed it in exhibition 1975, The Land, selected by Bill Brandt, and showed Ansel Adams' work in 1976 in the V&A, and the whole thing was completely thrilling. And it was not until 2002 that I realized that this is what the picture really looked like when it was first seen. This is the way it was printed, and it was John Tchaikovsky, again, who who showed us in his exhibition, Ansel Adams at 100, how Ansel printed the photograph for many years. He then intensified the negative in the 1950s to, to make that moon, to isolate, isolate that moon in, in a thrilling black void, to separate it from the Earth. The moment it, in this version, it has these trailing streams of clouds so beautifully positioned, which link it to the terrestrial. But in the other version, as he improved it, it, it rides above everything and it becomes this great universal elegy and hymn to the deep spaces of the southwest. So which would you prefer? The one on the right, which is as close as we can get to the original vision that he saw, or the one where he refined it to this, this thrilling universal symbol? Well, at least with Henri Cartier-Bresson, you knew you weren't going to get pre-visualization of that kind, no zone system. You were going to get the acme of small camera photography, like a 35 millimeter, this extraordinarily athletic, um, spontaneous ability to organize form. I always liked that remark by Leonardo da Vinci about the artist must have compasses in his eyes. Well, Henri certainly had those. So again, this wonderful picture in which everything rhymes and is so fugitive, it wasn't really like that, unfortunately, because in 1992, John Lohengard of Time Life published a book on the negative, and Henri allowed him to show the original negative, which reveals there was part of a fence in the way on the left. He, was fo he had to photograph between, I think, slats and a fence, if I remember it rightly, so the, one of the most classic examples of the Henri Cartier-Bresson aesthetic is actually a contravention of his aesthetic because it is cropped. You can see the way that deep foreground has to be cropped away as well as the obstruction on the left. I began to get interested in 19th century photographs in, by chance in 1972. I never cared for them because I thought I was a modernist until I saw... From Today Painting is Dead at the V&A in 1972, which had this photograph in it. And I simply fell in love with it because I presumably love looking at photographs of water. And, and it's a marvelous picture. And it's, it, it, as I began to study it years later, I realized it was one of the first pictures of modern leisure, the great subject of Impressionism. But it's before Impressionism. It's 1858, the summer, country town, 
an hour's drive west of Chartres with the bourgeois couple over here on the left bank and the, the working class people here on the right. So it's an early picture of something rather special to, the, to this particular quarter of the 19th century. And I was shocked again a few years later when I discovered there was another version of it in the Société Française de Photography in Paris, which looks like this. I mean, not only a different shape, but a different color, um, a slightly different cropping, a different foreground, not just a simple burn-in, but cloud detail. But um, what struck me most is that, which I thought was frankly unfair, was that Camille Sylvie had moved the clouds. So in this one, the, cloud nest, the poplar nestles nicely in a kink in the cloud, but somebody must have said, Camille, you can't do that. This is ridiculous. So he moves the clouds to the left. So again, you can see that the plot is beginning to thicken in my life as regards photography. Nonetheless, I published what I thought was a levisite close reading of this picture to end all close reading. It was the first book on a 19th century photograph that um, 120 pages long about one photograph without deviation, hesitation, or, or the other thing. Um, and it wasn't until the book arrived from the Getty that I realized that I had been hoodwinked again. And my book was already out of date because... I'd never seen this particular detail of the picture. So this tree has no central trunk. And this tree is, is not a real tree at all. These have been pushed up. These have been drawn on the negative and pushed up into the space, the dead zone between two negatives. There's one negative for the ground and another negative for the sky because that's the way it had to be in the days of wet collodion negatives. And he had to do something, he thought, to make you read across the divide. So, now having begun to be interested in early photographs, I, I looked at this picture again in the V&A collection. This is the, like the Sylvie. This had been in the V&A collection since 1868. And I was looking at a couple of books on my desk over my sandwiches one lunchtime, and I realized it was not just this famous example of The Valley of the Shadow of Death by Roger Fenton, taken in the Crimean War, 1855, 56, and taking its title, of course, from the, the Tennyson poem in the 23rd Psalm. And I, I realized there was another version in Texas in the Gernsheim collection in which all the cannonballs are, are in this little gully. And as a friend of mine remarked, they could have been there since the 18th century. But if you look at this one, they, they, they look as though they've just arrived from the Russian cannons. And... and I began to wonder, with my now suspicious mind, whether Fenton and his assistant had been monkeying around with, with the terrain. And it seemed to me quite possible, an open question. Is this, what, is this the sequence of events? Empty landscape on the left, um, cunningly and dramatically cannibal-strewn strewn landscape on the right. So I, I wasn't sure. I discovered the great pictures of the Farm Security Administration in 1972, and I, I was so moved by them that I thought I could do a show and, and have the same effect on other people who would not have known them. So I did this show in 1973 at the V&A, my first photography 
piece of curatorship and it, it had the famous pictures by Walker Evans and Dorothy Lang and the Dust Bowl ballads of Woody Guthrie played in the, in the gallery um, on, a loud spe- on a speaker system. Woody Guthrie, the direct mentor of Bob Dylan. And I got to know these people, Ali Mae Burroughs, the sharecropper, husband, Floyd Burroughs, who are the heroes and heroines of, of James Agee's famous book, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. And I, I became very involved in their, in their stories and in the pictures Evans took so rigorously, unsparingly of their simple cabin in Alabama in 1936. Part of the New Deal, the FSA was one of the most progressive agencies of that, um, that great administration and showed how art could be mobilized to, in a form of benign propaganda for an, a part of the population that was under threat and suspicion from other parts of the population who didn't see why they should get handouts from the government and so on. These pictures obviously became so famous that one of them became a, a postage stamp in this series, this one here. Almost, it could almost be hanging in your beautiful Dutch gallery here. Um, and I, I learned, for example, that Floyd Burroughs thought he'd had a good year during the Depression if he ended up only owing the bank $5.00. It was really life on the edge. This is the hungry 30s personified. So when um, I was at a dinner for to celebrate the opening of a major exhibition about reality and photography, I was startled to find this photograph on the menu. And it, he became a rather uncomfortable dining companion to me and a few others with me, but obviously wild horses would not drag from me the name of the institution or the sponsors. <laughs> but I began to, having seen that, I began to become hypersensitive to, to this kind of thing. So, you know, any curator gets floods of, of shoals of, of invitation cards constantly, and this one arrived soon afterwards. And I thought, why am I, looking at, why am I looking at these particular people? And the reason, of course, is that this was an exhibition of Appalachian lives. And there was, a, there was an opening in Fahid Klein. And I happened to be in a gallery in New York showing this same work as all the beautiful linen was being got out and the chilled wine and the glasses. And I, I left. I couldn't bear it. I thought there was a disconnect here. And again, this is a photograph that arrived more or less at the same time. Why am I being sent a road accident? And, of course, the reason is obvious, because this is Ouija, the, the doyen of crime photographers in New York in the 1940s. So, of course, I'm going to be sent this. And it was the same summer that I was holidaying in Maine, and I listened to a PBS broadcast in which a journalist, Tom Juno, was explaining why it was important to bring to light a picture he thought had been censored out of history. And it was the picture of the falling man, which he said was so exquisite and so finely balanced and so important and so significant that it had to be brought out of the, the darkness that it had been placed in by others. And I bought the Esquire magazine and I read his article and I thought it was completely self-serving because, in fact, the... As he pointed out, it had been seen. It was in the New York Times the day after 9-11. 
So it was on the public record, but perhaps it was not shown after that because this is a real person who is falling to his death and there are grieving families who m might believe this is their father, husband, whatever. So there was perfectly good reasons for not showing this picture. And on the same trip I happened to New York, I happened to see this um, Max Beckman photograph of a painting of a falling man and I, and I realized there was an unbridgeable difference between photography and painting. There are key differences, much as we, the two things seem to have merged in recent years in so many ways. There are key differences. And again, not long afterwards, I, I was having Christmas in, in a village in England, and I took the New Yorker to read over Christmas, and I was startled to find that a critic I have respect for and know slightly, Vince Aletti, was writing something that made no sense to me. He was reviewing an exhibition of photographs by um, Enrique Metanides, the Mexican photojournalist who was a specialist. He was a sort of Ouija of his time, I suppose the 50s and 60s and, and later. And he made photographs of, of traffic accidents. And I couldn't understand how, how Vince Aletti could s say... The group of his photographs at Anton Kern in the last column, Chelsea, is terrific. Among them is a 1974 shot of three attractive teenagers sprawled next to their crashed sports car, which Warhol would have screened in a heartbeat. But the victim of another auto accident, a pretty blonde woman who doesn't seem to realize she's dead, steals the show by forcing us to confront her unknowing gaze. So I think there is a, a disconnect going on between what is in these pictures and the way people are looking at them and reality. And I became, as I say, super sensitive to this. So one summer, um, I saw this, I think, 2006 in the V&A's um, nice paper conservation labs. It's, you can recognize them. Barbara Kruger's signature take on um, remake of Descartes. I shot there for I am. And it was the following winter sales at Selfridges, the flagship store in, in London's Oxford Street, the souk of Europe, as it is now known, um, which had this. It had something in it that was a cross between an artist's residency and a postmodern ironic take on commerce. So Barbara Kruger was, was invited to plaster the store with her signature graphics. And even her best-known picture was pressed into service in actual sale. I wondered if this was supposed to prove that Capitalism makes everything into consumption in the end. And then I got a sale. Sorry, this is rather unrelenting. I hope we'll all have a good drink afterwards. Um, I got this sale from catalogue from Christie's. And, of course, I'm, I'm very fond of the people at Christie's. I know them well. I've known them for years. And they did this sale on in photographs suitable for interiors. So there's Horst, there's David Bailey's Jagger, there's... Uh, Christine Keeler by Lewis Morley. There's the famous um, Shea picture. There's a, um, another horse down the right and so on. And, and this is, was in the sale too. This is the assassinated striking worker around 1934 from Mexico by Manuel Alvarez Bravo. 
a picture that was first published in Minotaur, I think, in a, the end of the 30s, a picture that is part of the history of art, certainly. But it seemed extraordinary to think of somebody buying it to hang up in, as a part of an, a decor. And then um, we come to the other kinds of um, disconnect and, and falsification. Um, this is um, from Frank Rich's book, The Greatest Story Ever Sold, The Decline and Fall of Truth. And he, one of his great columns in the New York Times on Sunday did, did write about one particularly egregious moment when the black arts of propaganda were used by the, the Bush White House in a very extraordinary way. It was, it was that famous um, shoot, Mission Accomplished, which involved a U.S. Navy aircraft carrier, carrier diverting to already been at sea for far too long, but diverting to 40 miles off San Diego so that um, then-President Bush could fly in, be photographed as an aviator. And then three hours later, at the magic hour, when there's this wonderful balance between natural light and artificial light, the perfect moment for a, a seductive shoot, he is, then, he is then televised live to catch primetime audiences giving his mission-accomplished speech. And on the right, you can see him in that aviator um, gear. But as you can see, the photograph has been monkeyed with to reveal all the coffins of dead US personnel from Iraq, which um, these photographs, of course, were opposed by the Bush administration for as long as they could. They were not allowed to be taken or seen or published until a freedom of information Act um, plea got that overturned. And one of the things I like about this photograph in its current rendition is something that Tina Fey said about it on Late Night Live. She mentioned that President Bush seems to have stuffed some socks down his front. <laughs> so on the one hand, we have the black arts being used by the White House on the left at the magic hour with huge deployment of resources to achieve a propaganda effect and on the right, we have sort of homemade, um, subversive tampering with the picture to, to reverse its content using digital technology. And that's what I want to come to next. Um, this is a photograph by Me uh, Pedro Mea, the Mexican photographer and digital maestro. And he, he made these two versions of a picture purportedly from Iraq, um, I hope you can just about read on the left. It's uh, Lance Corporal Budrio killed my dad and he knocked up my sister. On the right it says Lance Corporal Budrio saved my dad and he rescued my sister. And both are equally authentic looking. And there are very many well-documented digital pictures that have come out of Iraq that I don't want to go into because they, they, they're well enough known. I want to do something slightly different. I want to show you this. Um, it's, I don't need to show you the photograph because, of course, you know it already. And I thought when these pictures appeared, it reversed everything I had begun to think about photography and this disconnect and the fact that falsification was so rife and so easy to do because these pictures were never doubted. And as a matter of fact, they did perfectly demonstrate um, Edward Carpenter's and Marshall McLuhan's ideas about 
media ratios because CBS television had these photographs and were thinking about airing them before, but were told by the White House that it would be dangerous. But the New Yorker then also got the pictures and was going to run with them, which then precipitated CBS into airing them. So it was, again, the older medium which takes the responsibility and the younger medium which connives with authority, which fits the McLuhan-Carpenter theory. And this is, of course, how they were first seen on the website with Seymour Hersh's commentary. And they were, of course, seen around the world. And they spawned a whole extraordinary uh, iconography. This is from the Forkscrew Studio in New York, free to download... And this example is with uh, President Bush's clumsy but unfortunately true remarks. Um, the same image becomes this in The Guardian, The London Guardian. It becomes this in the hands of Joe Sacco on torture. It becomes this in the last panel of this cartoon. It becomes this only last summer in The Guardian. This is uh, when the government, the British government, was charged on very good evidence, in my opinion, with outsourcing torture interrogation to allies like Pakistan. And if you look at the detail, you can see again the reference back to Abu Ghraib. One of the most moving examples of the use of those photographs is by the sculptor Brotero, whose work you normally think of as rather roly-poly figures in public squares around the world, including London, I'm glad to say. Well, he used them to make this series in 2004, which immediately, because of the medium, bring into play Western Christian iconography and the flagellation. Um, so this picture has, has become a kind of special branding for the Bush administration. It follows them everywhere, and it's pinned to them like one of those flag pins you can see on their lapels. Needless to say, Rumsfeld, then Secretary for War, tried belatedly to ban camera phones in Iraq. But um, one of the really interesting things, I think, is the arrival of the camera phone in the last few years, which I think has changed things. I think this is a camera phone picture, and it shows a one of the victims of London's 7-7 bombings of the transit system. This is a man emerging from one of the underground stations in um, July on the July the seventh. When was it? 2006. To be photographed, and this became a very well-known icon of that terrible day, and. The man in the photograph was, in fact, an, uh, one of the heirs of Marshall McLuhan because he's a professor of media studies, an Australian called John Tullock. And he was horrified to find his picture in the Sun newspaper, part of the Murdoch Empire, selling Tell Tony his right. But being a media professor, he fought back in The Guardian and said, the Sun stole my voice. And he was able to write this story about his actual feelings about what had happened and his beliefs, because unlike Tony Blair, he did not believe it was right to lock up people suspected, simply suspected of terrorism for 92 days, which many think is akin to torture. The government has managed to push through 
a 42-day detention period. But this man was opposed to it, and he said, he said he didn't mind being used by the media to when he was visited in hospital by Prince Charles on the left there, but he, he as he says on the right, very trenchantly, he, he's, um, he's not angry with the bombers who he felt were deluded and misled. He feels angry with the political leaders for organizing a, to him, illegal invasion. So this is a great demonstration of the battle over meaning in the media. Now let's go back to this picture again because one of the things I, I believe with Geoffrey Best is that history is this special kind of, court of posthumous court of justice and I was wrong about Roger Fenton's picture. Gordon Baldwin, who many of you will know, is um, a curator of photographs who was at the Getty for many years and a few years ago he read the Illustrated London News reports on the Crimean War and he realised that the Russian guns and the British guns had the same caliber, the cannons. So when the cannons fired their balls to, to the enemy, the enemy would, after a discreet interval, go and harvest them and fire them straight back. So Gordon's theory, which I think is correct, is that this is, the, this is not the sequence of events here. It's, this, is, this is the... Sorry. Oh, This is the sequence of events. So Fenton is blameless <laughs> because history is doing its work. And I published that in a book with the inane title The 100 Greatest Photographs, and naturally I did it for money. But it was, if it was a coffee table book, it was a double-shot coffee table book. And it had genuine scholarship by people I respect. And one of those was Gordon Baldwin, who wrote about Fenton, and another was Claude Cookman, professor of photojournalism at Indiana University, who wrote about this famous picture by Dimitri Balthamantz of women mourning their war dead at Kerch in, on the Russian-German front in around 1944. And I knew this picture well. I had acquired it for the V&A many years before, and I was startled to read Claude's remarks, which I share with you here. Balthamantz used composite printing, just like Sylvie, and extensive darkroom manipulations to construct his picture. A straight print of the negative shows an empty gray sky. For the final print, he used a second negative to add the lowering clouds. The somber tone of this sky reinforces the human drama in the foreground. In addition, he lightened the woman's head and neck scarves and the coat of the slain man, lifting them from middle to light greys. He also significantly lightened the tones in the triangle formed by the woman, her loved one, and the line of bodies near the centre, effectively turning some of the mud into snow. The heightened contrast makes this lower right corner the formal focal point, enhancing the picture's emotional focal point. So the same book included this photograph, you'll know, of course, by Robert Kappa, the um, falling loyalist militiaman um, from the Spanish Civil War, 1936. And Claude wrote about it guardedly because this picture has changed its meaning so many times that he, he made an open argument that it was a genuine photograph of violent death in war but that 
um, position has changed during the earlier part of this year. A Spanish historian has, has checked out that line of hills you can see to the right and argues that it, the photograph could not have been taken in Cerro Moriano at the top but had to have been taken in Espayo, lower down to the right, where no fighting took place on that day. And he, I think, proves his case. I'm waiting for the CAPA specialists to reply before I finally make up my mind, of course. But it looks as though this theory is correct. And also, when you look back at the original VU magazine in 1936, you can see there are not one falling loyalist militia member, but two. And is it likely, is it possible that CAPA could be in position to photograph two violent deaths one after the other, with very slight change of camera position. A friend of mine said that as soon as he saw this, a seasoned photojournalist, he, he thought this couldn't be right. And, and when he read the biography of, autobiography of Kappa, who says he, he sent the, the material, the film, to Paris unedited and unprocessed. So it was his agent in Paris who supplied the captions. So what might have been an exercise and something done for the camera was made by the agent into, given this specific title that it has used, been used to this day. Now, the New York Times, as, as Jeffrey James told me earlier in the summer, did an editorial about the, the significance of this, the loss of this icon from photojournalism and from the reputation of Robert Kappa as, as a profoundly um, sad outcome. But for me, it's it's a vindication of the historical process, that court of justice, the, the posthumous court of justice of Geoffrey Best. And we get back to Rumsfeld again, because, again, as I said, the, the camera phone seems to have changed the political equation. And I became even more sharply aware of this when I was judging a, helping to judge a competition organized by the Center for Crime and Justice Studies of King's College London, and there Ken Loach, the film director, was the chief of our panel, and it was a very interesting subject, what is crime? And this was one of the entrants that particularly caught my eye, because a, a policeman is videoing a protester, a demonstrator, and someone else is taking a picture of the scene with a camera phone. And which is, indeed is the crime going on here? Well, um, under the Counterterrorism Act of 2008, the crime is being committed by the person photographing the, the policeman or the member of any of the armed forces, except at the bottom you can see it is a defence for a person charged with an offence under, under this section to prove that they had a reasonable excuse for their action. So the onus is shifted to the innocent camera photographer in this case. Now, there was a demonstration of all this in action at the G20 demonstrations earlier this year. When, and I was, I, this matters particularly to me because both of my daughters were demonstrating in this and facing um, police um, heavy-handedness, to put it mildly. Anyway, the, the outcome of, of this, the demonstrations, which were aimed at, at reminding world leaders that they, they, 
faced a deficit in dealing with not only the banking crisis, but climate change and the whole economic system. And an unexpected byproduct of this was that an unfortunate news vendor going home from his position in his pitch in Bishopsgate was attacked by a member of the special patrol group very close to the Bank of England. And this was filmed, as it turned out, by a hedge fund manager from New York. By It's a video. He had a video phone. Um, these didn't emerge at once, and the official autopsy revealed wrongly that this man, Ian Tomlinson, had died of a heart attack. When the film emerged, it became clear that he had been attacked by a special patrol group officer who was masked and not wearing any identifying numbers. So this um, is likely to lead to the first ever prosecution and conviction of a policeman in the UK. So this is the sequence of um, stills from that video. Um, and a former director of public prosecutions, Ken MacDonald, wrote these words about this new... Um, what he discovered, uh, described as the, the newly discovered power of mass photojournalism. Now a single punch or a glancing whack of the truncheon can be captured and broadcast to the watching world without control. It seems that anyone with a camera can do a better job than the Independent Police Complaints Com Commission, who had, f first of all, cleared the police of any wrongdoing. Indeed, it's apparently only those people with cameras who can prize a decent distance between that body and the police they are supposed to be watching. This is pretty serious stuff. And the march that was held to, in memory of Tomlinson, I saw this man holding up this, the famous line from Juvenal, the Roman satirist, um, who watches the watchman. Well, it turns out, as Shami Chakrabarti, director of Liberty, said, everyone is now in a position to watch the watchman. The photograph in the picture is um, from Tehran, um, a sniper on the roof watching demonstrators. And, of course, it was at that event, one of those events that Neda Sultan was, was, was shot and murdered by just such a sniper. This was the New York Times' response to that beyond the censors. And, of course, this is the response of the, the Iranian authorities to this new power to, to smash Computers, and we have no idea how many bodies have been smashed in beyond the reach of cameras in Iranian prisons. But nonetheless, there has been a, a significant change, and it goes for me with that that, that concept of the historian as citizen um, that Jeffrey Best said, with which we began. Now the citizen historian um, idea spreads to the the citizen as photojournalist. I want to finish with a book that naturally came to my attention because of the title. It's published by Zone Books, a division of MIT, and it's by the Israeli photo writer and historian Ariela Azoulay, The Civil Contract of Photography. And she writes that um, her view of photography has been determined by the condition of Palestinians living in the territories occupied by Israel since 1967. 
The latter, she writes, are non-citizens who for more than 40 years now have been ruled by Israeli authorities alongside Israeli citizens but are deprived of basic rights. So she says it's because of this that when she's shown a photograph like the one you see on the screen of a a Palestinian shopkeeper showing a lock that has been forced by Israeli paratroopers, he is not showing it to the photographer, he is showing it to citizens beyond the borders of this dispute. He is showing it to a citizen conscience. And she chooses as an illustration for her thesis this early photograph, as is um, the figure in her book, the larger black and white picture, and there's the caption, the branded hand of Captain Jonathan Walker, a daguerreotype by the the illustrious Southworth and Hawes partnership from 1845, and there on the left, top left, is it as a as a cased daguerreotype, and below it is the um, an engraving which reverses it, so you can read the SS. And her point is that in the south of the United States in those days, SS meant slave stealer, but the same two letters in the north meant slave saviour. And she presents this as an example of photography as witness and photography as something reaching out to citizenry. I want to finish, I'm sorry this has been so dark, I want to finish with something just as somber. And (laughs) this is um, from Geoffrey Best's lecture back in Edinburgh in 1969. It's by a Canadian poet who was published here in Toronto in 1966. And it's about the role of historians getting involved with trivia and not paying attention to the reality around them. So in the second stanza, till one day after the world is tired of waiting, while they are busy arguing about the obvious, a half-witted demagogue will walk away with their children. So it may be dark, but it's uh, not unprophetic. Thank you very much, and I'd like to try and answer your questions if you have any. Thank you.